0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, so, my name's Albert, the other Albert. I'm the uh, lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network and delighted to be here this morning and delighted to be able to start on a brand new sermon series this fall on the book of Isaiah. That's right, Isaiah. I mean, it's going to be fantastic. So, what do we know about Isaiah? Well, if you were to turn to the table of contents in your Bible, and I took a picture of mine up on the screen, you will see that Isaiah, which is here on the red, is found in the Old Testament, right? And Isaiah is actually one of the longer books in the entire Bible, and it is the first book listed among all the books of the prophets. That, uh, the book of the prophets is what I put in the blue bracket. And the prophets are split into two groups. They have the major prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and who wrote Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And together, they're called the major prophets, and the prophets that follow, the 12 that follow, are called the minor prophets. Now, we have to be careful that minor prophets doesn't mean minor or less important. Minor just simply means that their books are shorter. And uh, we have to note that they're just as important. Isaiah is the first book listed among the books of the prophets. And Isaiah is arguably, for most people, the most important book of all of them when it comes to the prophets. According to the NIV Study Bible, this is the introduction of Isaiah in what it writes. That the book of Isaiah is a great masterpiece from at least two perspectives. It is a literary masterpiece in its stirring poetic cadences and its gripping imagery. That's why often Isaiah is called the Shakespeare of the Prophets. But second, it is a theological masterpiece, managing to contain in its 66 chapters virtually the whole of biblical theology, from God's transcendence through creation and redemption to the final destiny of the cosmos. And this second perspective is why I absolutely love Isaiah, because it's just layered and layered upon layered with theological content. And more than any other book in the Old Testament, it alludes to, predicts, and points to Jesus. I mean, Isaiah might actually be better called the prophet for the New Testament, meaning that Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other of the major prophets and uh, more than all the minor prophets combined. In fact, because of the abundance of uh, allusions and quotes that the New Testament writers, such as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Paul pick up from Isaiah, Isaiah has actually greatly influenced how they... And we have come to understand the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Hence why the title that we have for this sermon series is simply the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah is a fantastic book. And as we get into this book, I think you will be blown away about the theological layers and how fantastic this book is pointing to Jesus. So who's excited? Okay, good. 10 of you. That's awesome. <laughs> and so uh, let's get started today. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1 begins like this. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now in reading Isaiah, context is really, really important. And thankfully, this very first verse gives us the historical context. In that we learn three things. Who, when, when. And why. First, who is Isaiah? Well, we read that Isaiah was the son of Amos, and we have to be careful. Amos uh, is uh, a guy, but not Amos, which was a minor prophet with the same name. So, what do we know about Amos? Well, according to rabbinical literature, Amos is actually the younger brother of King Amaziah, which thus makes Isaiah part of the royal family. Interestingly, the name Isaiah literally means. God saves or Yahweh saves which ultimately gives us a hint of what this book is all about that the man and the book are about the same thing God saves the second thing is when that Isaiah wrote this book during the reign of these four kings these four names starting from Uzziah which would have been his cousin then Jotham Ahaz and Hezekiah now Uzziah was king starting around 792 B.C. Hezekiah's reign ended in 687 B.C., which means that Isaiah wrote this book during the span of about 105 years between their reigns. And the last thing we learn is the most important. Why? Why does Isaiah even write this book? Well, the reason is he's responding to a vision or a prophecy Concerning the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Now it's important here to remember that a prophet is first and foremost, a fort- not a fortune teller or a future teller, but instead a spokesperson for God. That God gives Isaiah a vision and Isaiah speaks this vision, which eventually gets written down for us to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. And so what do we know about Judah and Jerusalem during the time of Isaiah? And this is when context is really, really important. About 300 years before Isaiah was born, Israel was a powerful nation under the rule of King David and King Solomon. But over time, the nation began to collapse, the economy crumbled, and more and more people started turning away from God. The once great nation of Israel even experienced a coup d'etat, a rebellion. It was divided and then split into two different kingdoms. And you'll see on the map here, the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. And each had their own government and each had their own king. Well, during Isaiah's time... The northern kingdom of Israel was on the verge of being conquered by the nation of Assyria. In fact, in 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and took them over. Now, the Assyrians had an interesting way of dealing with people from conquered lands. They believed that they could prevent rebellion by uprooting people from their homes and relocating them throughout their empire. And so the Israelites were scattered throughout the entire Assyrian Empire. Many married non-Jewish people and lost their Jewish roots. Some of them who married non-Jewish people decided to stay in the land, and they were then given the name Samaritans. And that's how they came to be. So now, you can imagine, even in this context, the sense of fear and terror the southern kingdom of Judah must have felt. I mean, the kingdom of Israel is gone It's lost, and they are next in line. And it is in this context that Isaiah begins to preach and to plead with the people of Israel. This is the vision that he got from God. Look at what happened to the kingdom of Israel. Do not make the same mistake. If only you're willing to repent and return back to God, you will be saved. But the Israelites were not willing to listen. They had already broken the vertical relationship with God and had severed the whole Isaiah relationship with others. And this is where we pick things up in chapter 1. So Isaiah doesn't pull any punches. He jumps off chapter 1, verse 2. This is how he begins. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. That's pretty cutting, isn't it? And Isaiah has such a profound way of putting things, doesn't he? The ox knows whose boss, the donkey knows the hand that feeds him, but not Israel. No, no, no. Israel has turned their backs on their own father. They have walked off and have never looked back. That right here in the very first four verses, Isaiah points to the fact that how the nation has severed the vertical relationship they had with God, the Father, the Holy One of Israel. And worse yet, not only did they turn their backs on God, they then proceeded to turn towards and chased after other gods. They began to chase idols. I mean, Judah had gone so far away that they began to worship objects that they created with their own hands, like these miniature statues of Baal that were found. I mean, they actually crafted. Can you imagine making your own little god? Something that could not speak. Something that would eventually rust and mold. Something that you had to take care of, not the other way around. And something that had no chance of saving them from anything. And our world isn't much different. You just replace Baal with a modern idol like money. Money is something we have created with our own hands, something that does not speak, something that will eventually tear and decompose, and something that has no chance of truly saving us in the end. I mean, what's the point of being buried, surrounded with all your money? It's gonna not help you in the end. Sometimes we think of idols as physical things, like money or statues, or in this city, a detached house with a garage. But an idol can be anything. An idol can be anything that displaces God from the center of our lives. It can even be family and children, our work, a political cause, and even religious activity. And that's exactly what's happening in Judah. The Israelites would gather, sure, faithfully every week at the temple. They would sing their songs and make their offerings. The problem was that they did this out of routine and for their own glory and not for true worship. Listen to what Isaiah writes next in verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked you this? Who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening, for your hands are full of blood. Then in the midst of being conquered with the Assyrians and the Babylonian armies at their doorstep, you would have expected, you would hope that the Israelites would go into a new life of faith, pray earnestly, and live a life devoted to God. But what does Isaiah find? He finds that people were in the right place and they said the right words. But they were not right before God. Because worship is not a matter of places or words. It's a matter of life and love, mercy and obedience. Don't get me wrong, places are important, immensely important. This room is important. Buildings like this are places where we sing together, gather, hear the word preached. But it isn't about the building. Uh, and for that, I'm glad that one of our campuses meets at a theater. Showing up on every, every Sunday doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Attendance does not make you a follower of Jesus. A repentant heart, a belief and faith in Jesus. Changed actions, spiritual fruit. That's what makes you a Christian. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it standing in a church singing a hymn doesn't make us more holy and righteous any more than standing in a barn and neighing makes us a horse. <laughs> That's pretty good, hey? <laughs> Places are important, sure. Words are important, immensely important. What we say is important. We often sing these wonderful songs and these hymns. We just sang this beautiful hymn, holy, holy, holy. But do we mean what we sing? Do we mean what we pray? The Israelites would stand in the temple, they would say the right words, they would say these long flowery prayers, but mindless repetition of holy words no more creates a relationship with God than saying, I love you, I love you, I love you 50 times makes you a good lover. It actually has to come from here. The people were in the right place and they said the right words, but they were not right with God. God calls their presence then and calls their offerings meaningless and detestable. It's a show. It's a charade. It's a lie. Because worship is not only a matter of places and words. It's a matter of life and love, of mercy and obedience. And this is so important. Friends, showing up to church and saying the right words is a lot easier than working out a life of justice and love. Showing up to church once a week is a lot easier than engaging in the hard work of a life of prayer and scripture reading and devotion, which develops then into concern for your neighbor, for poverty and justice in the marginalized. And it is here where we discover that an authentic, vertical relationship with God always, always gets expressed in a horizontal relationship with others. That if you really loved God, you would love those made in his image. If you really loved God, you would seek justice. God is angry because Israel has proven not to be the light of the nations that he wanted them to be. And as we read Isaiah, it becomes more and more clear that the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer, and it was because of the unjust practices of the rich that caused people to be more poor. And so God has had enough. He intervenes and calls Isaiah to speak to the nation. And listen to what Isaiah writes next in chapter 1. Listen to how he describes and defines true worship. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will then eat the good things of the land. And I love this last line. If you are willing and obedient, if you repent and wash and make yourselves clean, if you do right, seek justice and defend the oppressed, then... You will eat the good things of the land. Then you will stay in the land. Then you will be blessed. Then you won't have to worry about the armies on your doorstep. If only, if only, if only Israel would listen. And yet Israel will ignore Isaiah's plea. Isaiah's words will fall on deaf ears. The nation of Israel will not respond with a profound new sense of genuine worship, and they will continue to be a just, corrupt, and oppressive to the poor. Because Of that God's judgment against the nation was inevitable fast forward to 586 BC the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar will sweep down from the north lay siege to Judah and burn Jerusalem to the ground the God in his providence will actually use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge and hold his own people accountable for their actions they refuse to repent and change God thus had no other choice but to send them to exile. God is a just God and he will judge. God is too holy to allow evil to go on forever. And so he judged the Israelites for their sin, idolatry, and rebellion. But praise God, he is also a God of grace and a God of love. He's a God of second chances judgment always has a purpose and that is to bring people back to him that intertwined with this message of judgment is a message of hope at the verge of being conquered by the babylonians isaiah nonetheless gives them a glimmer of hope the hope that god will one day bring them back from exile restore them back to jerusalem and restore them back to this wonderful and powerful nation they were how will this happen and who will rescue and save them and what about us Like Israel, we too will be judged for our rebellion, our idolatry, and our sin. We too have constantly turned our back on God. We too have ignored the plight of the marginalized. Who will save us? Isaiah gives us a hint. In the very first few chapters of the book, in Isaiah 4, he writes this In the day the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of their survivors in Israel. There will be survivors. Those who are left in Zion will remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. There is hope. And then it goes on in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, the branch of the Lord. And note the word branch is actually capitalized, obviously referring to a person. Well, who is this branch the spirit of the Lord is going to rest upon? Yeah. Jesus, what a powerful image. This is Isaiah at his best. Then in the ancient Near East, as you can imagine, there were not that many trees. And the ones that did grow, man, they were highly valued. Because they gave shade, they offered birds a place to rest. It would be a sign of water and life. And it would have been a tragic sight to ever see a tree cut down. That when a thriving, growing tree would be cut down, only a stump would be left. That would be heartbreaking. That would be despair. Well, Isaiah uses this image of a stump to paint a picture of the kingdom of Judah. A once thriving nation, it will be cut down. Only a stump, only a remnant will remain. It's heartbreaking. But there is hope. There's always hope that out of that stump will come a branch. A branch will start growing out of it. Life will return life that comes after death and even fruit will begin to grow because death and judgment are never the last words. Life and hope are the last words. Jesus is the last word. Jesus, the shoot of Jesse, who will in the last few chapters of Isaiah, and I'm skipping forward, be this mysterious suffering servant who will ultimately deliver us from that judgment through his own death. Jesus, are you beginning to see what you're in for for the month of this fall season? Isaiah is going to knock your socks off. So let me put all this together. The most distinctive description of God in the entire book of Isaiah is that he calls God the Holy One of Israel. In fact, this title appears 28 times in Isaiah and only six times in the rest of the Old Testament. That God is the Holy One of Israel. Now, it can be a challenge to define what we mean by the word holy. Holy. Most people think of synonyms like purity or sacredness, and they're apt and they're right. It's an important part of it, but there's more to this word, that the Hebrew word uh, for holy, kadosh, literally means to be separate or to be set apart. It refers to someone or something that is wholly, completely other, that there is no one like God in all of creation. Only God is holy, truly holy, eternally self-sufficient, transcendent, brilliant, pure, perfect, holy, holy, holy. So can you imagine standing before the presence of God? Standing before God with all your iniquities, with all your sin, with all your idolatry. How can we even stand in his presence? And you see this through scripture, that every single time someone comes before the presence of God, they fall flat on their face. Appears what Isaiah does in chapter 6. That's why every time, even when an angel appears, the first thing they have to say is, do not be afraid, because people are petrified. Because people cannot stand in the presence of God. Because standing in the presence of holy God strips us down to realize what and who we really are. Unholy. We come to church on Sunday and we ask God to help us be holy. We pray to be in holy places. We read from holy scriptures and we to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And yet we come to church sometimes anything but holy. Anything but ready to worship God. That when we compare our sinful lives to his holiness, we realize who we really are. And it shows us that we lack everything. So this morning, in response to God's holiness, in response to what Isaiah has called the nation and to us today, to return back to God, to abandon our idols, to listen, to work for justice, I can actually think of no proper response than to repent, to ask God to forgive us of our sins. So this morning, we're going to end our time together with prayer. So I'm going to invite the worship band to come back up as we prepare to pray. So for the early Christians, uh, they often actually prayed with their bodies because they actually realized that their bodies actually conveyed the posture of their hearts, So I'm going to ask you to stand if that's possible. I was going to get you to kneel, but (laughs) some of us have bad knees. So I want you to make a fist with your hands and then drop them to your waist and cross them over. Um, This is the traditional posture of a prisoner who's brought before a judge or before a king. And our hands are shackled with chains because that's what We deserve we look down never looking up because looking up to a king would be a quick sentence or a quick death and this is the posture of humility of guilt and of repentance so will you join with me and pray this prayer with me Lord in the light of your goodness in the light of your glory In the light of your holiness, I see myself as I really am. And the only thing I can say is, I am sorry. I have sinned. I have chased after other gods. And I have broken your heart. So hear our prayers of repentance. And yet shame doesn't get the last word. Sin doesn't get the last word. Guilt does not get the last word. Jesus is the last word. And in Jesus, for what he did for you on the cross, you are forgiven. That as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed your transgressions from you. And so I ask you now, to break those chains. Go ahead, break those chains and open your hands and lift them up because you are forgiven. Your sins are removed. Open your hands to receive God's forgiveness, to receive his love, to receive his grace, to receive his spirit to receive him, Jesus.